The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And this morning I want to bring to you our last message on the Great Commission, which is the command for us to preach the gospel of Christ. This is a message today for church members, a message for the people of God. Much of what I have to say today, you say, well, we already know that. We've heard these things many, many times before. But this is part of what we do as we preach the Word of God. We just keep repeating things over and over again until we actually do get it, that we understand and we do it. And uh, this is part of teaching the teaching ministry of the church. Now, I've titled the messages In the Service of the King because the purpose of this commission that Christ gave is to make new disciples, it's to make followers of Jesus, to make them worshipers of the one who is the rightful king of heaven and in earth. Christ is to be glorified and magnified, and those that are brought into his kingdom become his loyal subjects, recognizing that he does have absolute authority over them. And this is a point that we must continue to make. We cannot leave this. We can't forget this because it is so critical that true saving faith means to receive Jesus Christ as Lord, that true disciples recognize him as Lord, and that is a defining characteristic of those that are saved. And without that, there is no salvation. Now, in uh, the next two messages that will close out the book of Matthew, we're going to look at the gospel of the commission, and that's where we talk about the gospel itself, uh, what is the true gospel, and how can you actually know that you have believed to the saving of your soul. That'll come up in the last two messages. Now, if you'll look at our text in Matthew chapter 28, we begin at verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the world. Now our concentration today is on verses 19 and 20, which is commonly called the Great Commission, and we have covered an extensive outline for four previous sermons on the rest of the verses, and I don't feel that we need to replace, uh, retrace all of those steps, but I just want to remind you that these verses are a directive from the king. Jesus is the one who is the king. He has all authority. And his main concern is about his kingdom and that people respond to that authority. But it's also that we recognize that the main entity inside of the kingdom of God is the Lord's church. That it is the Lord's church that operates in the world today. And this is that entity that God has given to preach the gospel of Christ. Now we look at our text here and we see that God, that Christ had commanded for 11 men to meet him and he would give them this commission. And as they met with him, they were the body of Christ. They were his church. He called them as a group to come to Galilee. And the commission was given to this 11 because they were the ones who were chosen to be the charter members of his church. They were the pillars of the church. They were the foundation of the church. That's what the Word of God says about them. They are the foundation of the church and the doctrines of the church are built upon them and are established on them and they are anchored to Jesus Christ who is the chief cornerstone. And so the gospel of the church is given to them and they obeyed that command and they were faithful to preach it. Now it's important to note that it started here with a commission given to these men not as individuals but as they were the body of Christ, the Lord's church here on earth. Now, I want to start our study today with the sixth part of our outline. 
It looks a little bit strange maybe to start with number six, but the other five parts will be found on your other listening sheets from the weeks before. This one starts with our sixth point, which is the education. So we've talked about engagement and enthrallment, elevation, emphasis, and the eleven. And then in the, here in this last message, we're going to cover the last two points, six and seven. And the sixth point is the one, education. Now, verse 19 says that the apostles were to teach all nations. And we looked at that word teach. It means to make disciples. This is the Greek word mathetuo. The word actually means disciple. It means an adherent or it means a, a learner of Christ. Disciples are adherents to the doctrines of Christ. And so we find in that command to make disciples, inside of that, compacted into that, is going to be repentance. Repentance from all of our sins. There is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is in that command. And then there is also the lordship of Jesus Christ in that command. And that's what it takes for a person to be a true Christian and to have salvation. So there is a command to follow Christ, a command to obey all other commands that he has given. And without that commitment, if a person does not make that commitment to him, then there is no salvation. Now, what you can't do is to split this word in verse number 19 into different parts and to say that, well, faith and repentance and becoming a Christian is different than being a disciple of Christ. No, that, all of that is comprehended right here. To be, to be a real a saved person is to make this commitment to full discipleship. These things go together. So a person who is made a disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who has repented of all of his sin. He follows Christ without reservation. And if he doesn't do it, then there isn't any salvation. Now, as we observe verse number 19, we see here that there are two directives for making disciples or in discipleship. The first one is baptizing. Baptism is the initiatory rite of the Christian faith. That is the very first step for a Christian. When a person receives Christ as Savior, the very first step after this is to be baptized. Now, we see that coupled with all gospel presentations in the New Testament. Now, although salvation is dependent only upon our repentance and our faith, yet we do see that baptism is put in here as being the first act of obedience for a newly converted believer. And so last week we looked at the example of the Ethiopian eunuch and how that Philip went and preached to him. And we noticed that in that eighth chapter of, of the book of Acts that Philip gave him no explanation about baptism. There's nothing there in his presentation as it records what he told that man about being saved. But we also see that as soon as they had passed a body of water that was sufficient for the man to be baptized, the Ethiopian eunuch posed this question, what doth hinder me from being baptized? And that tells us that Philip must have explained baptism in his presentation or else the Ethiopian would not have asked that question. So the first thing that he did after he heard the gospel of Christ and he had believed it was to respond to that gospel with an obedient faith. Now, baptism is a sign of our identification with Christ. It's the outward expression that a Christian makes of the inward reality. This says, I do believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. I do believe that that is for my sins. I do believe that's the way I'm saved. And so baptism demonstrates the saving power of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, in baptism, we find the Lord's method for declaring a life of obedience. And you can't remove that from this. You can't substitute anything for it. You can't say that, well, walking the church aisle and shaking the preacher's hand, that's good enough. That shows that I've made a commitment. It's not to stand before a congregation and say, this is what I've decided to do. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. No, the Bible doesn't say that's the way that you show you're a Christian. The Bible says you're baptized. You're baptized. That's the identifying right. That is the public act, and that is not optional for a believing disciple. Now, make no mistake about this. I'm not saying that baptism is salvation, but it does show a willingness to follow the Lord, to receive his lordship over our entire life. And so we have to conclude that a person who refuses to be baptized has rejected Christ's authority. 
And that is no indication that whatever he says he's going to do is going to come true. We can't expect him to follow any other commands of Christ if he doesn't follow this one, because that's the very first one that God says that we are to do. Now, if a person then is looking for assurance of his salvation, if he falls short in that very first examination, the, the submission to baptism, if he fails to identify with Christ, then where is he going to find assurance that he knows Christ at all? Now, it's sad and it's wrong what many churches have taught about baptism. Because it's not necessary for salvation, there are many who downplay baptism. They act as if it's not important. They de-emphasize it. I've been in Baptist churches where they scheduled baptisms for months and months away. I don't see anything like that in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer and his family were saved after the preaching of Paul and Silas. And the Bible says that on that same night that they were baptized, the Ethiopian eunuch, we have just saw that, that as soon as they passed a place where there was sufficient water to have a baptism, Philip baptized him. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved at the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And on that very same day, the disciples took care to baptize every single one of those 3,000 people. The Apostle Peter, on the, day of, uh, on the day that he went to talk to Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, he spoke to him and his household believed, and on that same day they were baptized. And then further, according to New Testament practice, there was never any question that believers would be baptized. It was never, never thought, it never entered anyone's thought that any believer wouldn't be. In Acts chapter 19, there you find the Apostle Paul meeting some disciples who came from Ephesus for the first time. He met them for the first time, and he perceived that they didn't know some things. They hadn't been taught correctly on some things, but he never asked them, have you been baptized, or do you still need to be baptized? Now, it turns out that he baptized them again because their baptism was wrong, but he never assumed that there are Christians who weren't baptized. No, of course, they're going to be baptized. And then in Romans chapter 6, there the Apostle Paul explains in depth what baptism represents. And he never said, because I've given you this explanation that this is what it's all about, that because of this, you now need to be baptized. Oh, he didn't say that because he knew they had been baptized. And so he said, now, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Christians are baptized. That's the norm. An unbaptized Christian is a fish out of water, pun intended. It's an anomaly, almost completely unheard of in the history of the church, that someone who claims to be a Christian would not be baptized. It simply is not entertained until, until we come to modern Christianity. Not until obedience to Christ has been played down by churches do we ever have, see anything like this, that you would find a Christian who is not baptized? Now, just to drive that point home again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talked about people that he had baptized, and he talked about others who had been baptized. But at no time did he say, there are some of you Corinthians that have professed Christ, and now you need to be baptized. That just never happened. And why is that true? Why, why don't we see that? We don't see it because this is basic. This is fundamental. Here we have a command from the risen Lord, the resurrected Christ. He gives the great commission. It comes from the one who has all power and authority in heaven and in earth. So we are to obey that. We are to do this. We are to disciple people and to baptize them. Now, most of the time here in our church, we, we don't put off baptism for more than a week. Sometimes we, it has to be a little bit longer. And the reason that that comes up is because Friends and family want to attend. A baptized person wants his friends and family to be there to watch because baptism is an excellent testimony of faith. So the one who is baptized wants to share that. They want the family to see it. They have committed their lives to Christ. And uh, what, what life of faith is there that would shun obedience to the one who gave his life to save us from sin? And so I'll make it real simple for you. 
For any of you that might be saved and you've not yet been baptized, I'll put it to you this way, maybe not so nicely and you might not like it, but you are at the pinnacle, at the pinnacle of disobedience. I don't need to speak to you about any other of Christ's commands if you haven't done this. And maybe you didn't understand that before, but I've made it clear to you. And so you don't have an excuse not to submit now that you know, except maybe that you're still in unbelief. Oh, but I've heard a lot of excuses about why I'm not going to be baptized. I've heard the I'm afraid excuse. I've heard I'm the embarrassed excuse. I've heard, well, I don't want to put my face under the water excuse. And I've heard, I don't want to get my hair wet. I've heard that excuse. But we think about this. Here is Christ who hung naked, bleeding, nailed to a cross. And we've got an excuse like that why we won't be baptized. There isn't much hope that anybody's going to amount to anything as a Christian when he's got those kinds of excuses not to obey the Lord Christ. Now let me show you something else about the importance of baptism. I mentioned that Paul wrote to the Romans about it and to the Corinthians about it. You can also go to Galatians and find it, Galatians chapter 3. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And you can go to Ephesians and we see baptism again. There is one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. In the book of Colossians, it says, buried with him in baptism where also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. You read the book of Hebrews and you'll find baptism. You read First Peter and you will find baptism. And those letters are written to people in churches. And the point that I want to make about that is there's no one in those churches who have not been baptized. And do you know why? Because baptism is the initiatory rite. This is the way that a believer is brought into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes in his baptism. You can't get membership in the church, in the Lord's church, without baptism. Let me take you back again to those people on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And with many other words did he testify and exhort. That's Peter preaching. With many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now do you notice there how that they were added to the church? Belief did not add them to the church. That's what most people teach today. But that's not what added, to, added them. They believe for sure, but they're not added until they are baptized. And so baptism is the way into the Lord's church. And that's something that you, you'll never find in the New Testament either. You're never going to find a Christian who is outside of the Lord's church. Everybody in the New Testament who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a part of his church. And the only ones that aren't are the ones that have been kicked out or the ones that have been preached out. And we are told to assume they're not Christians anyway. Now this brings us back to the command in verse number 19. What about disciples? Who are true disciples? How do you confirm converts in the faith that they are truly subjects of the king? You start with baptism. And if they haven't taken that first step, you never assume that you actually have a true convert. Now, in the last message, we also talked about the mode of baptism. What is a valid New Testament baptism? Well, we see Scripture shows that it must be by immersion. Perhaps you think that you're okay because you were sprinkled as a baby. Sprinkling is not baptism. Infants are not to be baptized. Having water poured on you is not baptism. Baptize means to immerse. The body goes under the water. The body comes out of the water. And that alone is baptism. And in that, we have that beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if you need to see that symbolism again, just go back and read Romans chapter 6, where Paul explains that. And then, I also need to repeat that the only valid baptisms are those that are done by New Testament churches. No one else has the authority, no one has the authority of this commission to baptize people except true New Testament churches. 
Now these 11 men are given the commission. They are the first church. And parachurch organizations have never been given a commission. Nobody else has been given a commission. The authority for baptism has always resided in the Lord's church. It was passed down from the apostles to churches that they started. And then that's passed down to other churches until we come down to the present day. There has always been a New Testament church in the world. That's promised here in the Gospel of Matthew. There always has been a New Testament church in the world since the day that Jesus started it. It's real. It's an entity. It's always been here. But there's also been a false church that has arisen very shortly after the first century. Uh, we have false churches that are cropping up everywhere. But those churches don't have the authority to baptize. Only the true church has that authority. Now next Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. This is one of the strongest Trinitarian verses that we have in Scripture. Now I want you to look at it very carefully in your Bible. You see it says that we are to baptize in the name of. And you might want to underline name and write beside it singular. That's very important. The word is singular. That points to the triune nature of our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is one. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one God, but He is three in one. There we also find equality, that there is no disparity between these three. They are one. They are equal in power and authority. And that alone would prove that there is one God, not three, it's impossible to have three equal gods. So here the scripture teaches that the Father is God and Jesus is God. And Jesus couldn't have said this any plainer than in verse 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Who has all power? That is God. And then he follows that in that 19th verse, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so also we see the Holy Spirit is God. But also, I mean, I really want you to see this, that in this statement, that baptism becomes a confession for us. It is a confession of what we have believed. It's a confession that we do believe in the Trinity. We do believe that Jesus Christ is God. Now, you know, that's that important element, uh, the association of Jesus and baptism showing that he is God is something that has been lost in our Western civilization. It's practically gone. There has to be a confession of who Jesus Christ really is before a person can be saved. And I say that that part is lost in discipleship or in, in that, in that uh, uh, connection between the two because baptism in the first century meant that you were a follower of Jesus Christ, that you recognized who he is. It was a badge of the relationship that you had with Christ. Baptism was actually a stigma for Christians. It was a stigma that said you had renounced all other gods. It said, you're not going to trust in anybody else. Your faith is in Jesus Christ alone. Back in those days, baptism was a cause for your unbelieving family to reject you, to throw you out. Back in those days, baptism meant that you weren't flirting with Christianity, that you weren't just thinking about Christianity, that you weren't wading into this cautiously, and you're not just testing the waters to see if you might like to become a Christian. No, when you were baptized, that said that you had taken the plunge literally and spiritually. And you're saying, I am all in. I'm all in to everything that Jesus Christ is. A baptized Jew meant that he was going to be expelled from the synagogues. He has no fellowship. He's rejected from them. A baptized Gentile meant that he was a troublemaker. It meant that he was a follower of Christ. And in their minds, that meant he stood against Caesar. The oath of allegiance to the emperor is curios kaiser, which means Caesar is Lord. But Christians would not say that. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would say, Kyrios Iesus, Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Now, one of the great examples of martyrdom was the death of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was taught by him, and he was given the option of saying, Caesar is Lord, and if he would say that, then he would not be burned at the stake. But Polycarp would not say it. 
Over and over again, even as they were gathering the wood around him and as they were lighting the fire, Polycarp said, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And they burned him and he died. Another story of martyrdom from antiquity is a Christian man who watched all of his children die as they were thrown to the lions and they were torn apart. And the way to save them was for him to say, Caesar is Lord. But the man wouldn't do it. And one by one, they took his children and his wife. And with the death of each one of them, he was given the option of saving the next. And all he had to say is, Caesar is Lord. But he wouldn't do it. And so right there before his eyes, he watched his family being shredded, eaten by the lions, and then he himself was eaten by lions because his confession is, Jesus is Lord. And did you know that baptism was that public symbol that said, this is what I believe? This is my testimony? Baptism said, I am all in no matter what happens to me. And that part's been lost. Baptism is taken lightly. And so I would say to you that if you are not all in, then don't step into the baptistry. It is a lie to say that I am crucified with Christ, that I died with Christ, that I've risen with Christ. It is a lie to get into that baptistry and then turn your back on him by refusing to obey him. Now, why is all of that true? Why is it true? Because the commission says this. Baptize them because they have surrendered completely to the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And for every one of you sitting in this room today that you have been baptized and you are a member of the Berean Baptist Church, that's what you said. You said when you got into the water that I have committed myself to the Lord Jesus Christ and you said I'm going to follow Him, I'm going to live differently, I'm not going to flirt with the world anymore, I'm not going to be out here doing things on Saturday night that I shouldn't be doing, I'm not going to be saying the wrong things, talking the wrong way, acting the wrong way, walking with the wrong people, drinking the wrong thing, smoking the wrong thing. I'm not going to have anything to do with that because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism said. And if you did that back in the days of the apostles, if you said that, it meant that you could die for doing it. And I doubt very seriously we're going to find too many Christians that are involved in all the things that they're doing today that are willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't give up your sin, you're not going to die for him. Now, to finalize this part of our discussion on baptism, I want you to notice what looks like a different formula here in Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8, verse 14... Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen on none of them. Listen, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is there something wrong here? Is this contrary to the command of Trinitarian baptism? Well, I know that there are many who say it, it really doesn't matter that we don't actually have a formula for baptism. There aren't words that we actually do need to say when someone gets into the baptistry. And then there are some who point here to Acts chapter 8, and they say, anyway, besides this, it says here that we're only to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you'll find that to be a common position among what's called oneness Pentecostals that they don't believe in the Trinity anyway. And so they say, here is our command to baptize only in the name of the Lord Jesus. But is this, is this a formula here? Well, this is not a formula. It's been given in Acts chapter 8. Here we find a statement that salvation is real because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That baptism references what Jesus did. That he's the person of the Godhead who followed this through with a physical thing of being crucified, buried, and he was risen again. So this is not rejection of the Trinitarian formula. This is actually pointing us back to what Jesus did. So it doesn't mean we choose different words for baptism. Well, the baptism formula of Matthew 28, 19, and 20 makes a statement. When I take someone into the water and I baptize them, and I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... We are making a statement when we do that that we believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. That he is there in the Godhead. That he is divine. Now to reject that divinity 
is to reject his authority. And there is no salvation unless you believe the absolute authority. And that is, if that is not recognized, then you don't actually know Jesus Christ. You have to believe the truth about Jesus in order to be saved. This is why Mormons cannot be saved. This is why Jehovah Witnesses cannot be saved. And that's because they have rejected the truth of who Jesus is. Now, they sound nice when they come to talk with you. And they'll bring a Bible, even a King James Bible, to your door. And they'll want to talk to you about the Bible. But they are demons in disguise. Oh, that's not kind, is it? They're demons in disguise. John said in 2 John, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If they're come, by the way, they're non-Trinitarians. If they come unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. I think of that all the time when a Mormon comes to my door. What do you say when they get ready to leave? What do you say to them? God bless you. Have a good time. I hope you're successful. Well, I'm not going to say that. I've told you before, I turn the sprinklers on when they're leaving. And... Uh, Catch them as they're going out. 1 John 2. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, I'll conclude this by emphasizing again the importance of baptism. It's not going to save you. But Christ did put it in the commission. It is an absolute commitment to the truth about him. It has to be made. Absolute surrender to the authority of Christ must be made. Well, we move on then to our last verse, verse number 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now here then is the second part of education in the commission, and that is teaching. Now we noted before that the word teach in verse number 19 is a different word from verse number 20. In verse number 19, the word is mathet yuo. That is a word that means to disciple. It means to make learners. But this word in verse number 20 is a different word for teach. And this is the more common word of the New Testament. And this is the word didasko. And you might recognize that as the root word for our word didactic, which means to instruct. Now, for the church, then, to carry out the full commission, there has to be a teaching ministry. You see, when new disciples are made, they have a desire to learn. They have a desire to be taught. A disciple is a learner, and learners want to be taught. If you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, and you don't care about being taught, that you don't care about learning the Word of God, something's very seriously wrong, because this has been built into you. Learners, disciples, want to be taught. Well, what are we to teach them? Well, we have a very comprehensive statement here. Jesus held nothing back. Teach them all things. So what Jesus said, give them the whole truckload. Dump it all on them. Give them everything that's there. Don't dabble around with bits and pieces of the Christian faith. Give it all to them. Teach it all to them to observe all things that I have commanded. So what do we do? We don't leave anything out. And this is why that we teach the Bible verse by verse. It's so that we don't leave anything out. We've made a commitment to organize systematic presentations of Bible doctrine. We, we don't want you to be left short by skipping parts that are in the Scriptures and not going into those things, even if they're the deeper doctrines of the faith. This is why you get five messages on the commission instead of a pep rally sermon on the word go. This is why you get more when you come here than you need to cut your hair and you need to lengthen your dresses. You might need to do both of those things. And then get out of here, hit the streets and knock on doors and don't come back here until you have your report filled out in triplicate. Now the word go is in the commission and we don't want to forget about that, but we also have to stress this, that we are to make disciples and we have to know what that looks like. We have to know, are they true disciples? Are these really people that have committed themselves to Christ? And because somebody has responded to three points in a prayer is not a certain indication that the commission is actually happening. Jesus said to, the, to uh, take people into the realm of every requirement, everything that there is. 
to living in its kingdom? Oh, where do you suppose that information would be found? Well, the manual for it, it's quite extensive, by the way. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So there it is, all Scripture. All of the Scriptures, instruction of righteousness, teaching, that's what we're supposed to teach. Teach them everything there is to know. That becomes a lifelong vocation for a Bible teacher. That becomes a lifelong commitment for a Bible student. To know Christ means to know everything there is to know about Him. Now, when I read the Bible, I find words like justification and sanctification. I find imputation and predestination. I find election and glorification. There's baptism. There's ecclesiology. There's pneumatology. There's eschatology. There's adoption. There's perseverance. The list just keeps going on and on. And somehow, I feel woefully uneducated biblically if I don't know what those things are. I read the Bible and I have no clue what those things are. Something is missing. Something is wrong when I read the Bible and I can't understand anything but John 3.16. And I really don't understand that very well. Most churches avoid all the other doctrines. They want people out on the streets. They want people out there with a bare minimum knowledge of who Christ is, what it means to be a Christian. And somehow they must figure, we're wasting time to educate people. Just get them out there telling people about how to be saved. Tell them that. And they're not even concerned about whether their own Christian workers are actually deepening their faith in the Christ that they claim to know. So how are they supposed to know what a true convert really looks like? And I think a lot of people are confused by that. Now, a few weeks ago, I told you that I would tell you the story of two Baptist deacons that came from the fundamental church and they came to my door. Now, mark this. I said, these men were deacons. And I expect that when I speak to a deacon, that a deacon has knowledge of the Scriptures. Hear that, deacons? I expect that you have knowledge of the Scriptures. So I, I invited these men to come into my house. I was genuinely glad that they came. And I sat down with them, and I thought, this is going to be just a wonderful opportunity just to talk to these two men who know the Lord. They're out here giving the gospel to people. That's great. And we'll be able to sit down and talk about the Lord, and we can talk about our faith and the things that we have in common. We can talk about the Scriptures and just Jesus Christ and what God teaches about Him. And I think I spent about 30 minutes with these two men, and they were like two bumps on a log when it came to discussing the Scriptures. That was obvious to me. They knew something. What did they know? They knew the Romans road. They had five or six scriptures of the Romans road. They knew that very well, but that was the extent of their training. And they were out here talking to people. They were supposed to get cards filled out. That's their responsibility. Get cards filled out, come back and report how many did we win today. And I would submit that that fast-growing church was filled with people who were not disciples. People that aren't taught. And I know that they weren't taught because if the, if the deacons aren't taught, then what's going to make you think that the rank and file in the church knows anything? So the commission is to teach all things that the Scripture says. The education is ongoing. It is progressive. It goes deeper and deeper until there is a rich understanding of Christ and what He did in His work of redemption. And you need to understand this, that knowing who Christ is is more than knowing about a manger. It's even more, more than knowing about a cross. It's more than knowing even about the resurrection. It's more than knowing about the empty tomb. The redemption of Jesus Christ goes deep, 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 and you have to keep digging down deep to find out what it's all about. And I know that there are a lot of people that are shocked when they leave a church and they come to a church like this one and they find out that they actually learn very little about the Word of God. And so they think, well, the preachers have been cheating in all this time. I don't want to cheat you. And this is why we preach things that most people never hear in church. And quite honestly, that keeps some people away. People come to Berean and they say, I don't understand that. I don't understand anything that he's talking about. I don't understand this. And they never will understand it if they never hear it. Now what Jesus wants is disciples who know his Word, because he knows that instructed disciples are devoted disciples, and those kind of disciples are less susceptible to being picked off by the enemy. They hold out faithful. 
Now, the Word of God, the Scripture says, perfects the people of God. Paul wrote that pastors and teachers are to keep on teaching until... Until what? Ephesians 4. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until we become perfect men. Until we look like Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to be without sin. Here, perfect it means in the sense of completeness. Having everything that is necessary to serve God in his kingdom. And that's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So this is what Christ expects from us. He wants obedience. The word of God convicts the heart. It purges us from all of those things that hinder effective service to God in his kingdom. It purifies the heart, which is why Jesus said, teach them to observe all things. That's the command. He is glorified by obedience. Good works flow out of obedience to the king. Well, I'd like to spend a lot more time on that. What we're actually discussing here is the doctrine of sanctification. You come on uh, Sunday nights. Uh, tonight will be the 22nd message on the doctrine of sanctification. But the purpose this morning, whether you believe it or not, is not to teach all that's in the word of God at one time. So we are going to end here before too long. We're not going to teach everything in the Word of God at one time. You have to keep on coming to hear that. So let's move on and finish the text. Now, if you remember, when I first started this, I said, you know, this is my Sermon on the Mount. This is my Sermon on the Mount. I got all of these points while I was walking up Taylor Mountain, and I came down from that holy mount with my face shining, and uh, I had seven points here to preach. And, and that's the Bible's number of completion. Now, it's strange how those things work out, but I have seven points, so here's the seventh one. Number seven is the encouragement. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, have you, figured, have you figured out that the commission is a very difficult prospect? These men had to go where people were hostile to them. Their message was not popular. It included ridicule and scorn. People thought that the gospel was foolishness. So they were thrown out of towns. They were persecuted and beaten. They were imprisoned and they were tortured. And besides that, they had all of these personal doubts that, and fears that arose in them. Now, one of my personal fears is the total inadequacy to do what God has called me to do. I mean, how do I deal with this? That the things that I talk to you about concern the destiny of eternal souls. Eternal souls depend on whether I am telling you the truth of the Word of God. Now that's a task that is monumental. Here we see that 11 men, that even before all this discussion takes place, in verse 17 it says that some of them doubted. And you take this and you look and, and you see what they're asked to do and you have to say, well, it can't be done. They don't have what it takes. Not one of them is known for his courage. And so we have to ask, well, who is sufficient for this? Who is going to be able to do this? And the answer to that question is, no one. No one is sufficient for this. Paul said, we hold life and death in our hands. He said, for we are unto God a sweet saver of Christ, and them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the saver of death unto death, and the other of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? That is a very imposing question. Who is sufficient for these things? We do have an answer. Not that we are sufficient, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Philippians 2, 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so Jesus puts this postscript on the Great Commission. You're not alone. I'm going to be with you. I don't ask you to do this alone. I'll be with you through it. God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so he said, I'm going to be there as long as it takes. I'll be there as long as it takes. How long is that going to be? I'm going to be with you until the end of the world. I'll be with you, teaching you and helping you and showing you. I'll be there beside you until the day that I come again. 
Now let, let's take a look back at the most, this most important text. The commission is given to 11 who are the men who are the church. And he says in Matthew 16, 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why won't the gates of hell prevail against it? Well, it's because the one who has all power and authority there is, to, is there to guard the church until the end of the world. Who's able to stand against that power? Who is sufficient for these things? Jesus Christ, that's who. He's sufficient for this. So what if the Lord hadn't added this postscript? What if he said, oh, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, here's the commission for you. I'm going to leave you to it. I'll be back in a few thousand years to see how you did with this. I'll check up on you, see how things have progressed. Would the church have survived? Look at your own life and say, or ask yourself the question, what if I was the hope for the survival of Christ's master plan for his kingdom? What if I, what if, what if I'm the one who is the hope that this is going to get done? Well, I shudder to think that would be the case. We all know what we're going to do. We're not going to do this alone. We're not going to attempt to do this alone. We have a way of making a mess with things. Did you know that? We do. We're not going to do this. We can't do this. We won't even try to do it on our own. The motivation is the promise, I will be with you until the end of the world. Now notice that he says always. Not just on good days. Not just when all seems to go well. Not when there's no opposition. Always. In the worst of times. In the best of times, he's going to be here. A bad day for a soul winner is not an indication that the Lord is not near. No, he's there. He's always going to be there. It's the bad days that you learn to lean on him even more. Now, another interesting thing as we close today, another interesting point about the commission is the lack of ambiguity in this. Many scriptures, and you know this as a Christian, if you've read the Bible very much, you know that many scriptures have to be figured out. Some of them, you just, wow, it just seems like you're never going to get to the meaning of that. In English, the English may be very difficult for you. And so some say, well, let's go back to the Greek and check it out and see if that helps us. And you find out, well, that doesn't help you either. And so you have Bible expositors all the time that are arguing over, what does this mean? What does the Scripture mean? But here, this text, whether we read it in English or we read it in Greek, it doesn't matter. It's as clear as it gets. Jesus is very clear about the commission. I have all authority in heaven and in earth. Do this, and I will be with you. Very simple and direct. And if you believe him, you will do it. Do you feel weak? Do you feel insufficient for it? Is the success of the commission in your hands? Well, if it is, then no one had ever seen a Christian church after the first century. It wouldn't be here. The world hates the church too much to let it survive. And Christ loves it too much to let it fail. Now, people, we are alive as Christ's New Testament church. He is always with us, and he will keep us until the day that he comes to take us home to be with him. He says, preach the word. That's the commission. Give people the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll be with you. I'll be there. I'll help you to do it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the word of God, thanking you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is able to save our souls. Lord, help us to remember the great sacrifice that you made for us, that we would be willing to share that with others. The gospel of the kingdom builds your church, and you've told us that your church is going to be built. And Lord, we need to be a part of that. Lay it upon the hearts of the members of Berean Baptist Church to do whatever it takes to build your kingdom. May our personal lives be what they ought to be so that no one can look at us and say there's no reason to be a member of the Lord's church. There's no reason to be in the kingdom of God because it doesn't really change anything. And sadly, so many Christians prove by their lives that that's what people ought to believe. Lord, help us to change that. Help us to change what we are, to be different, to obey the command that you've given. And in our baptism, we said that we would follow you. Make it true. Make it true, Lord. Cause us to be convicted of that. And may we be preachers of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I've told you today, it's old hat for you Christians, isn't it? Same stuff, heard it over and over again. Maybe a few little things in there sprinkled in that are presented in maybe a different way, but basically same information. We wonder why after hearing it so many times that we don't do it. We don't pay attention to it. We don't even really know what we ought to be doing sometimes, it seems. Well, God wants to see a much different people. That verse, verse number 18 in Matthew 28, is so, so critical. All power is given to me. That means you've got to obey him. You must obey him. If you trusted him and you said that you're a Christian, you must obey him. That's what the Lord expects from us. Then I think about the teaching. I'm going to let you go here in just a second. I think about the teaching. What, what are we supposed to be doing? Teaching people the word of God, giving it to them systematically so they understand it. This next week, I'm going to be traveling uh, in Kentucky and doing a little bit probably in uh, Tennessee and also in Virginia. And so I was looking on some church websites and I said, well, what's a, what's a good church there? And uh, as I've told you before, that part of the country, and if you're from that part of the country, you know you can find a Baptist church anywhere, just anywhere. I mean, you just, you just take a dart, take a map and a dart and throw it, and there's going to be a Baptist church right underneath where it hits. So I was checking all these Baptist churches, and I looked at sermons that were being preached. And I don't know what was going on. There must have been, I mean, somebody must have sent out the memo that here's what we were supposed to be preaching. And it was five steps to this, and how to be successful in your living and this was over and over and over again on all these different websites of Baptist preaching. And I didn't find anything there, but it was expounding the Word of God, actually. It's all, it's all helpful advice. Things that you go to the bookstore and you buy a book for, and you sit down there and you just kind of peruse, thinking, how am I going to get rich? How am I going to be, you know, how am I going to be happy? We need to be teaching people the Word of God. Get them down into the doctrines of the Word. Ground them in that, because that's the only thing that's going to make a successful Christian. How much do you know of God's Word? So that's what we're going to teach. Support that. Support that. Tell people to come and hear God's Word. Fill the pews up. You guys on this side, get busy over here. I don't want Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.